a wonderful privilege to be here with you this morning, and uh, I hope that you're going to feel very encouraged. What I feel to bring today is the joy of our salvation, and uh, I hope that we can come away feeling joyful and encouraged through the words this morning. And I want to start off by um, talking about a well-known story from the Old Testament that you probably all know very well, and that's the story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, I want to read from 2 Samuel 11. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David had always loved God and served him passionately. But in this passage, we see some red flags that are warnings that things were not as they should be. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab. David had begun to lapse into a place of lacking focus, zeal, and commitment in his role as king. Perhaps he was tired, or perhaps he was bored, or perhaps he had become distracted from the call of God on his life. The result was that he had abdicated leading his army into battle, and he delegated it to his general Joab. The army fought well, and bravely. But this simple line is so powerful in its understatement. But David remained in Jerusalem. In his idleness, he summons the beautiful Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, to his bed. We know that the story gets worse as Bathsheba falls pregnant and David conspires for her husband, Uriah, to be killed in the front line of the battlefield. And we have to ask ourselves, how had this powerful king and faithful servant of God fallen to the place of committing adultery and murder and justifying it to himself in his own mind? David had entered into that dangerous place of thinking that the rules did not apply to him. His complacency had made him indifferent and arrogant, and it was a slow but steady, slippery slope downwards. There is a sober warning to us in David's story, because if such a great man of God could fall into such a place of deceitfulness, we must not think that we are above falling into that same complacency that he experienced. You see, we become vulnerable when we see ourselves as not needing to be accountable to those who love us and can help us see our weaknesses. 
we become vulnerable when we remove ourselves from the community of believers and begin to assimilate the world's perspectives and behaviors. The story goes on, though, in chapter 12. And it goes on something like this. If we go into the next slide. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own numerous sheep or cattle to prepare a, a meal for the traveler who had come to him, and instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Well, David burned with anger when he heard the story that Nathan had said. And he said, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb ten times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you as king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. God, in his great love for David, does not leave him in the place of his sinful pride and blindness. He sends his prophet Nathan. Notice that Nathan is very careful in how he approaches the king. He does not challenge him directly because perhaps he knows that the king will not take too kindly to having his sins challenged and brought out in the open. Uh, I love what Larry Crabb says. He says that we are all basically threatened, proud, and defensive people. And the sooner we are open about that and recognize that about ourselves, we'll be much more open to hearing when those who love us begin to challenge us and point out things that need to be changed. David had become incensed at this injustice of the story that Nathan tells him, but he's still blind to the own injustices of his own choices. Isn't that funny how we can see the failings and the sins of others, but we are totally impervious and blind to our own? You see, the problem with the slow slide into sin is that as we steadily convince ourselves that we are okay and we subdue the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we become more and more deceived and justify our actions with arguments we've become convinced of in our own minds. Oh, 
But when David's eyes are opened and he sees his wrongdoing, what true repentance he responds with. And I believe this is one of the great reasons why David was called by God a man after his own heart. You see, there's a difference between repentance and remorse. Usually, remorse involves regret, not so much for your actions and how they've grieved God and hurt others, but more about the fact that you've been found out. But in David, we see true repentance, and he expresses this in Psalm 51, which we know he wrote immediately after Nathan confronted him and this whole thing happened, this terrible tragedy in his life. Now I want to read a few of the, the verses from Psalm 51 to capture the depth of uh, anguish and distress that he experiences realizing how he has grieved God. Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David knew that he had grieved God and he called out for forgiveness and restoration. And in verse 12, he says these very simple words, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sometimes we may find that we have slowly begun to lose the joy of our salvation, the joy of all that God has won and done for us. And we find ourselves far from God and ensnared in things that he never intended for us. I think of Genesis 4, verse 6 to 7, when God speaks to Cain as he's contemplating these terrible things against his brother Abel. And God said, it says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. The Apostle Paul also understood this wrestle with sin in his own heart when he wrote the letter to the church in Rome. And in Romans 7 verse 24, he says these words, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And if we just look back over the, the stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament and over church history, we see that all the great men of God who truly understood the grace of God start, that started with a revelation of the sinfulness of their own hearts. David, Augustine, Luther, Paul confronted a wretchedness within themselves that made them cry out to God for mercy. But Paul, having understood his need for being saved, 
declares in Romans 8 the joy of this amazing salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. When I first fully understood the truth of the gospel as Paul explains it in Romans 8, I had already been saved for 30 years. I was sitting listening to Ants preach in a tiny church in Holland. It was a sermon he had shared many times before and I'd heard it so many times. But suddenly, a revelation exploded into my heart as if I'd been saved for the first time. I had a new sense of the wonder of the joy of my salvation in Christ. And it is this joy that I believe Paul was at great pains to root the church in so that they did not lose the awesomeness of the freedom that has been won for us in Christ Jesus' death on the cross. So I want to read to you from verses 1 to 4, and you can see it there above there. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to liken it to the title of Dickens' book, The Tale of Two Cities, as I explain something of what this means. Paul describes a tension in us between the life of God's Spirit on the one hand and the tendency to satisfy the desires of the flesh almost as two different laws that are, are at work within us, that wage a war within us. We've got these two tensions fighting within us all the time. It's as if we were a citizen of one city which has been governed by a law of sin and death. And in this city, we were under the authority of the ceremonial judicial and moral laws given by Moses. That was the authority in the city. And these laws demanded perfection that our frail bodies were unable to live up to. In this city, the law was upheld as the perfect measuring stick for all humans to be able to stand before God in his holiness. But every single human simply fell short of ever fulfilling every dot and iota of the stringent code. Furthermore, the law was perfect in pointing out our failings and our sins, but it was powerless to help us change. Paul says this law was like a husband who points out all his wife's shortcomings, and he's right about it, but he never lifts a hand to help. That's what the law does. It tells us everything we do wrong, and it's, right, and it's right, but it never, ever helps us. This is the atmosphere and the quality of life in the city of living under the law of sin and death. 
It's an atmosphere of condemnation, wrath, and fear of punishment. Not a very nice place to live. But then Paul gives us the most wonderful hope and good news. Jesus Christ came to set us free from this first city with all its rules that led to bondage and fear. Jesus did for us what the Mosaic law could not do. He came and he lived in our world, governed by the law that points out all our sin and condemns us to death, and he more than satisfied every possible rule that was demanded for someone to be right with God. And Jesus set us free from this first city of sin and death and brought us into a new city, a new city that is governed with a different law and with a different atmosphere and a different culture. And everyone who places their faith in Jesus to rescue them comes under a new authority, which that verse spoke about, the law of the Spirit of life. Now, Paul has used some very interesting language And one of the words that he uses, he speaks about a contrast between the flesh versus the spirit. And he goes on in uh, Romans 8, verse 5 to 8, and he says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's an interesting thing when you immigrate from one country to another, as I'm sure many people here have experienced, and I've experienced it as well. You, you may take on the citizenship of a new country, but there are still aspects of your culture and attitudes from your country of birth that linger even as you begin to integrate into a new land. And the same is true for us spiritually. Um, We come out of a dispensation of death and sin and fear, and we enter into that fair country of God's grace. But we still have the mindset of our former way of life. And to make it more difficult, everything about us gravitates back to sin and living under rules to please God. It's how we're wired. So when Paul uses a word flesh in these verses, it's quite a strange word. We, we probably think of going to the butcher when you think of flesh or something else. But Paul uses it in a different sense, in the meaning that is, it's important that we understand. And also want to say that sometimes we as Westerners have inherited a, a Greek understanding of man and how man is made up. In, in ancient Greek culture, they thought that man was made up of three entities or components that made the whole. That we had the body, then there was the soul, that made up the mind and the emotions, and then there was the spirit. They were three separate things, but together they made up mankind. When David uses the word flesh, he is meaning it in a Hebrew sense of, of the word. 
For him, flesh involves every part of us, and it means our human body, um, our whole integrated being. It means our body, our mind, our emotions, our will. All of these things are in that one encapsulated phrase, the flesh. He's, he doesn't divide us up into different bits. The, the Hebrew view was that we were one being made up of all those things. You can't divorce your mind from your body and your um, your from your mind they're all integrated in in one being and i i find that is an important thing to say because so often we take on um, mindsets or understandings that are not essentially biblical and it affects how we see ourselves and how we understand what god has done in us so it's really important we do have a biblical view of a doctrine of man you see everything about our makeup our physical desires our thoughts, our feelings, our decisions are opposed to God and his ways. And that's why it says in that verse, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's, we're not wired. We're not built to be God-pleasing creatures and beings. We are totally different to him and his ways even though he made us and in his first letter to the uh, that the apostle john writes he speaks of an unholy trio sin the world and the devil and as christians we are called to renounce our allegiance to these influences and their authority over our lives it is in the inherent nature of our flesh to be enticed by sinful desires that come within us, for worldly values and pursuits to come and lure us, or to succumb to the devil's temptations and intimidation. We are wired like a honing beacon to all of those things. So it seems like a very dire assessment of the state of the human condition. But then we have this wonderful turn of phrase in verse 9. You however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Here is the great mystery and the joy of our salvation. Christ in us, the hope of glory. You see, not only have we been taken out of that city, out of that realm and jurisdiction of sin and death, but we've been given a new nature because the very Spirit of God lives within us. We are no longer a slave to our flesh, to our thoughts, those emotions. They're no longer the thing that rules us anymore. We're no longer undiscerning of the world and ignorant of the devil's ploys, but we are new creations under a new authority which is the love and the grace of God. And that verse that Paul started with in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that we understand that we've left the city of sin and death, that we're no longer subject to the whims and the desires of our flesh, 
but it's like we've got a new operating system to use computer language. There's a new operating system inside of us called the Holy Spirit. There is this most astounding, amazing joy that is the fruit of this wonderful salvation in Christ Jesus. And it's this truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is impossible for us to be condemned when Christ is in us and we are in him. What a beautiful verse. This is the great unspeakable privilege and comfort of all true Christians, that there is no condemnation. And we need to understand this clearly because Paul does not say there is no accusation. Because do we not know that the devil comes to accuse? It says he stands before God day and night accusing us, telling us, telling God of all the things that we do wrong. But Jesus is there, our great advocate, and he gets every one of those accusations thrown out of court. Do not let the devil come in the midnight hours and accuse you. You say, go away. I have a great advocate in heaven who's refuted every accusation. And Paul does not say that there's nothing in them that does not deserve condemnation, for there is. And when we see it, and we own it, as David had to do, we mourn after it, but we do not let it define us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And Paul does not say that there is no tribulation, there are, that there are no hard times, that there's no cross to bear or difficulties to face and to work through. These there are in abundance. We can all testify that for with our lives. But Jesus says, don't worry about those things because I have overcome the world. And Paul does not say that there is no discipline for those in Christ Jesus. We will be disciplined by God, but not condemned with the world. And preached last week to say that Christians never, need never ever fear hell. Hell is not something you need to fear if you are seated in the righteousness of Christ. This is because we are in Christ and through faith in him, we are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. He disciplines us because he loves us. You see, the devil will try to draw attention to every spot, wrinkle, and dimple in your life. And the longer you look into the mirror of introspection, the more you will see every single wrinkle. He will try to convince you that you need a whole lot more attention and prayer before you can be used by God. This is what introspection does. This is one of the great pitfalls of the Christian life. God never calls us to introspection. He calls us to healthy self-examination, which is what David did, but never to introspection that causes us to look deeper and deeper within ourselves. Jesus is our city of refuge and our protection. He is our advocate who gets all accusation thrown out of court, all the charges brought against us. And because Christ fulfilled the law completely, and we are in Christ, and he is in us, God does not 
and cannot condemn us because he sees Christ within us. And instead, he says, because you put your faith in my son, I am pleased with you. And I want to pause with that because many here need to hear that today. That God says to you, I am pleased with you. I do not condemn you. I am pleased. I'm pleased that you put your faith and your hope in Christ. The perfect law of freedom in Christ says to us, there is no condemnation. You are free. You are okay. God is smiling on you. Relax and be the person that God made you to be. Don't walk around with this heavy head held, your head held down and just feeling overwhelmed by your failings, by your weaknesses. That does not define you. When, Christ, when God looks on you, he sees Christ and he sees the blood of Christ washed over you and cleansing you. Paul understood that we all wrestle with our flesh. But the starting point is not our frailty, but our freedom from condemnation. It's a very different starting point. We as Christians shouldn't walk around feeling guilty all the time. If God convicts us by his spirit of something that we need to change, we confess it, we say sorry, and we repent and we change and we move on. If you are walking under a heavy spirit of feeling condemned, feeling like you, you are just not pleasing God, that is not from the Spirit of God. Be free. Walk into His forgiveness. If you need to own something that He's showing you, confess it and release it because God wants you to know there is no condemnation. This is the fruit of the joy of our salvation. Christ in us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what I want to share with you this morning.